This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. So what were you thinking about? Oh, a penthouse, the desert, kissing on a dance floor. So you did go to the movies last night after all. That's Mia Farrow being distracted from her dreary job by thoughts of a romantic leading man in the movie The Purple Rose of Cairo. In that film, Farrow's character goes to see the same movie again and again because it provides an escape from her gray and gloomy reality. She's a waitress married to a scummy guy she doesn't love, and to boot, it's the Great Depression. But in the world of the movie, everything's sumptuous fabrics and clever repartee. People were so beautiful. They they spoke so cleverly and they really? do such romantic things. They now, whether or not you've seen The Purple Rose of Cairo and whether or not you are a fan of the film, as I happen to be, it's hard not to see how the idea of escaping from the dreariness and desperation of the Great Depression into a 1930s film palace and a movie filled with sophisticated partygoers would be appealing. But... Is the pure escapism that's represented in the film within the Purple Rose of Cairo, which is also called the Purple Rose of Cairo, really what Depression-era audiences got out of the movies? Was it just pure fluff, or was there something more? Today on Fordham Conversations, we are looking at the films of the Depression and what they meant to the people who saw them. My guest on the show today is Sarah Vernazza. Vernaz is an associate dean at Fordham's College of Liberal Studies. She's also the director of the university's College at 60 program. When she's not administrating, Vernaza watches and researches old movies. And late last year, she gave a talk as part of the College at 60 program about Hollywood and the Great Depression. I asked Vernaza to join me in the studio to chat with me about what it was that people were getting when they plunked down their hard-earned cash and settled into those movie palace seats. Sarah Vernaza, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, when you talk about entertainment during the Depression, the phrase bread and circuses kind of comes to mind. Tell me about what people usually think of when they think of Depression-era film. For the most part, um, and it's partly true, most people do think about the escapist aspect of film, that during the hard times of the Depression, the American moviegoer went looking for escape from their dreary lives. So the bread and circus aspect is absolutely a factor. But I think much more deeply than that, under that simplistic answer, what the American public found in film in the early 1930s was the upholding of American values, of the fabric of American society. Although the Depression itself, hard times were not really portrayed on screen, what was portrayed on screen really upheld all the institutions of society so that it acted as comfort. It acted as uh, a reinforcement of hope and restored optimism and confidence in American society. Well, we will talk more in a minute about what these movies gave people. But tell me first, what was it like going to the movies during the Depression? What was the experience of, of going to see a film? It was very much, very much like today. A group of people sitting in the dark, sharing an experience. There's something communal about it. There is something escapist about it, of course. They could see new worlds on screen as well as familiar worlds on screen, a reflection of themselves as well as an, a reflection of perhaps what they aspired to. I think it's very similar to going to the movies today. My God, you must really love this picture. Me? You've been here all day, and I've seen you here twice before. You mean me? Yes, you, you, you. This is the fifth time you're seeing this. Henry, come here, quickly. 
I gotta speak to you. The theaters were pretty glorious back then, weren't they? They were. They were very gorgeous. They really were theater palaces back then. The movie industry in the late 20s, particularly in response to the uh, institution of sound in film, had really renovated. They had spent a lot of money uh, in the infrastructure and the new technology of sound. And they they were also trying to vertically integrate the studios. They were uh, buying theaters as well as uh, uh, studios and production facilities. And as they bought them, they renovated them. And yes, it, it... aggrandizes the movie-going experience. Now, even to today, if you walk into a very large, ornate theater, there's a different sense. You walk into Radio City Musical, which, of course, used to show film. It hasn't for many years, but it did at one time. You do have a, 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 a different attitude about the film itself. It's almost like the cultural cathedral, you know, so to speak, of of its time, certainly. That's very different from the multiplex where, you know, 50-seat theater, 12 theaters in one little building that you you have today. Uh, So I think that added to the unique experience, the importance of the experience. Film for most of the 20th century was one of the really major shared cultural activities. Cinema, when it develops in the early 1900s, brought all the classes together in one room to watch a film. That had really never happened before, so you would find elite society alongside all the various classes of society, all going to the same films, often at the same time. So it was a a very uh, unique cultural experience going to film, and as film developed over the decades, I think that aspect of it remains. It is the mass entertainment of of the century until you get to television. So what did people get out of movies then? During the early Depression, I think what they basically got out of it was laughter and fun. They got out of it a reflection of what they aspired to, cafe society, success stories. They got out of it a reaffirmation that the government or the police would catch the bad guy, (laughs) that the gangster would die at the end, that the woman who perhaps um, did anything to survive would be redeemed. So there was a reinsurgence or return to the moral code. And, you know, once the production code, 1934, the Hayes Act, uh, comes into play, Hollywood movies during that period did change. You know, to some degree, the films of the early Depression really are a challenging society for the most part. After the production code and once the economic recovery begins in the mid uh, 1930s, you have a m- more of an optimistic sense. Things are turning, things are changing. Hollywood doesn't fill that same niche uh, that it does in the early Depression years. Let's talk about movies during the early Depression years. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that many of the movies that were released during the early years of the Depression were sort of were sort of subversive. Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Actually, there are two streams. Uh, one, as I mentioned, the, the pure escapist films. But this other uh, grouping of films that include films like the gangster films, Little Caesar and Public Enemy in the early 30s, 
or World War I films that really show the war from the soldier's perspective, the hellishness of war, all quiet on the Western Front and the Dawn Patrol. He's dead. Why did you risk your life bringing him in? But it's Babe, my friend. It's a corpse, no matter who it is. Comedies like the Marx Brothers and Mae West, which really are anarchistic, as they're called, because they also subvert societal norms. Sorry to have to report there are four stowaways in the forward hatch. Stowaways? How do you know there are four of them? Well, they were saying Sweet Adeline. Even horror films. The Frankenstein, Dracula, King Kong all came out in the early 1930s. These films do challenge the values of American society in a very real way. Even the uh, kind of, um, what's the phrase we use today? The um, torn from the headlines sort of movies, a very social, realistic movies, topical films like um, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, for example, with Paul Muni. Uh, even these films, again, they challenge society in very real ways to reevaluate what are the roles, what are the norms. That they are reasserted at the end is the comfort value. It is the glue that keeps American society together. But they do present that challenge, the view of women in the women's films, the role of the government or the police in the gangster films, um, for example, in Little Caesar. Edward G. Robinson plays Rico, and at the very end, end of the film, of course, he is shot and killed. And his last line is more famous probably than the rest of the film, is this the end of Puerto Rico? Well, yes, and it had to be. The point of the films, the fallen women, the gangster films, even the topical films, was to show the rise and the success story, almost like a subverted Horatio Alger story, rags to riches, we could achieve and reach success particularly economic success, through these um, kind of criminal or outside of the norm activities. But in the end, they fall. They have to fall to keep society stable. How do the Marx Brothers fit in with this? Yes, very unusually, (laughs) I must say. Um, The anarchistic comedies, of which they are the main grouping, the main example They are anarchistic in the sense that they challenge, really attack society and the kind of values of society. If you think about the Marx Brothers, they are satirizing politics. They are satirizing education. You better keep quiet. We're a couple of big stockholders in this company. Stockholders, huh? Well, you look like a couple of stowaways to me. Well, don't forget, my fine fellow, that the stockholder of yesteryear is the stowaway of today. It's humor, so the message, the attack could be laughed off. But the attack on society, the sense of the absurdity of social relations, of political protocol. In uh, Duck Soup, for example, Groucho, who plays the character Rufus T. Firefly, who was appointed the president of this country of Fredonia, decides to go to war with the neighboring country of Sylvania because... The diplomat who comes to visit doesn't shake his hand, slaps him in the face and says, we're going to war. That kind of absurdity 
tapped a real vein in the American society for that same sense of what's happening, you know, what's going on, what isn't working, why isn't our society working? Have we been betrayed by our political government, uh, the banking industry, you know, the fall off of of the stock, the, the burst of the stock market? Um, all of those undermined uh, assumptions about security in American life. Well, the Marx Brothers, by bringing it right to the fore, sort of dispel it in a way. But the residue remains, the residue, the satire, and the irony, and that sense of absurdity. If the audience hadn't been ready for it, they wouldn't have responded as well as they had. So that they're tapping into that sense of insecurity, that, and I don't want to call it a paranoid sense, but that sense that something is wrong. Um, and they were able, however, to laugh it off as not a serious attack. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking on this morning's show about what it meant to go to the movies during the Great Depression. My guest is Sarah Vernazza. She's the director of Fordham's College at 60 program, and she recently gave a talk as part of that program's lecture series on Depression-era films. Let's get back to that conversation. So if you were to enter a movie house in the, the early to mid-30s, and I'm just talking about the early to mid-30s because after it was 1934, right, the Hayes yes. Code came into yes, effect? And correct. we'll talk a little bit more that, about that okay. in a minute. But if you were to enter a movie house in the 30s, you were likely to see one of sort of a few different kinds of movies you've mentioned. But mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit more about those. Tell me about uh, sort of gritty, realistic films. The gritty realism of uh, two types of films, particularly. The gangster film, of course, is also gritty and urban for the most part. But particularly, I think you're talking about the films that deal with social realism, um, topical films like um, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Night Nurse. Night Nurse, Barbara Stanwyck plays a nurse trying to take care of a family in which there has been alcoholism, abuse, social disorder, all the dysfunctional, almost criminal elements of a poor family life today in the film is portrayed openly. And she's trying to assist them. The point being the realism of hard times, the realism of not only the depression, but of um, society breaking down, poor marriages, violence in the home, abuse of the children, starvation of the family, are realistically portrayed up front and center, as we'd say. To some extent, they have, they not even to some extent, to a great extent, they have a socialist message. Um, they were not as popular in the box office, you know, as we would say today, in box office receipts. The most famous of them is I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Most of the others were what we would, I guess, call today B-movies, C-movies. Um, uh, not as popular, not on the A-list per se. But they were an important subgenre, I think, um, of films in the early 1930s. And it isn't the first time that you get that kind of film. Um, but I think because they remove the velvet glove, so to speak, and it had really shown in life and all its tragic consequences, fill an important slot in at the time period. So they were realistic in their way, but they were also very uh, sensationalist, weren't they, in they, sort of showing what would happen if you stepped outside of the norms of society? They certainly were very melodramatic, I would call them. So alongside those, you also had, like, 
the Marx Brothers type comedies, but then you also had movies about women, uh, certain kinds of women, fallen women like Blonde Venus and also women of the world like Mae West. That's correct. Um, roles, the, these films that are challenging society norms are also challenging the view of women. For the first time, you see differences in how women are portrayed. The fallen women uh, like Dietrich and uh, Barbara Stanwyck in Babyface or Jean Harlow in Red Dust. These are women who have led gritty lives. They've done whatever they had to to survive, whether that was just hard life or a product of the Depression. Specifically, they use their sexuality to survive. They are often cast as prostitutes or mistresses, kept women, um, to achieve material survival. I could earn that money by going back to the stage. I won't have you do that. But the doctor says you must go away. If I worked a few weeks, I might make enough for your passage. And then we'll find a way to keep you over there until you got well. It's out of the question. I won't have you go back to the stage. That's a new view of women. It's a freer version of women. Of course, it's changed dramatically with the production code. In fact, Babyface may very well have been the one film that led directly to the production code. Um, In that film, Barbara Stanwyck plays a young girl, a woman who, as she's talking about herself as a young girl, had been sold by her own father, pimped by her own father, and then used men. Uh, sexually and materially to climb out of poverty. It was very graphic and it was very direct. And of all the films having an effect um, on uh, production codes in Hollywood and censorship in Hollywood, this more than any perhaps may have been the single one. But the women in these films, they act independently. They're not dependent on men. But like the gangster films... They, too, have to fall. They need to be redeemed to reassert the moralistic value of American society at the time. And and they do. Most of them, um, after they have been punished, after their lives have been degraded, after they have been utterly gutted um, with a certain amount of Old Testament severity, biblical justice, then they can be redeemed by the men in their lives. And that's usually how these films end up, or they die, like as, as in the gangster films. You could never have caught me, not in a thousand years. And now get out, and don't forget to tell that husband of mine that I'm giving the kid up, not because he hounded me into it, but because I'm no good. You understand? No good at all. You get me? No good for anything. The exception is Mae West. Oh, she pops on Sam's silly. Mae West is sassy and fun. She's independent. She's not beholden. She doesn't need redemption. She doesn't want redemption. Um, she is economically successful. And she really turns morality on its head. Now, she's n- it's her for the most part. It's not a whole genre of film that fits into this category. Her films primarily stand out. Um, So she's not really providing an outline for a new view of women or a new lifestyle for women. On the other hand, her toughness, her wit, her general capability, her uh, use of men and use of her open sexuality, kind of a for want of a better word, I suppose, a kind of healthy sexuality. Um, Because of that, she really demolishes, in her films at least, temporarily, the stereotypes, the fallen women stereotype, the shrinking violet stereotype, the, the 
seductress stereotype. She doesn't fit any of those categories and quite successful. And of course, her primary films in the very early 1930s also. Uh, bring her right into that Depression era. She is immediately recognizable. She becomes iconic. Right? Her figure, her voice, her hair, um, her kind of smile, sexual smile, her sensual charm become uh, ingrained into American, the fabric of American society also um, for the first time. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarki. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, I'm talking today on the show with Sarah Vernazza. Vernazza is an associate dean at Fordham, and she is also an aficionado of 1930s cinema. She gave a talk recently at Fordham about the movies of the Great Depression, and I asked her to come in and talk with me about it for the show. Before the break, we were talking about Mae West and her many charms. But West's charms were too much for some. Let's get back to that conversation. Now, speaking of sexual charm, mm. um, you had mentioned the Hayes Production Code a couple times. Let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that. Tell me about that production code and the effect that it had on the film industry in the mid-30s. Well, to be quite honest, I would certainly call it an attempt to censor Hollywood film, and it was successful for quite a while. It was a result of the freedom of these films of the late 20s and early 30s, the aggrandizing of the gangster, the sexual mores of the fallen women, uh, for example, were fearful um, that they were going too far, that Hollywood was going too far in portraying, even the gritty realistic films, in showing too much. And to some degree, uh, it's not only the visual imagery, of course, that that, uh, gave it its uh, punch, but the fact that now it's sound, that you could hear some of the dialogue. The dialogue itself also was risque uh, or full of innuendo. Let's see what you got. What I've got? Let's see your legs. Is that enough? For the time being. In 1934, the Hayes Code, the production code as it's known, um, is brought into Hollywood. There is an office uh, set up at the uh, in Hollywood for the review of film. In fact, Babyface on its release, we know what the original film intent was because early copies of it have been discovered. But on its release, it was heavily edited um, and much of it was cleaned up. Um, So we do have cases in point. And for a very long time, uh, the production offices did have to review and did um, edit, censor, uh, change what was shown by the Hollywood studios. The Hollywood studios were there, after all, to make money. We're not going to buck the system, so to speak. And so Hollywood, to some degree, goes on the defensive rather than on the attack. Instead of films challenging the social order, you have much more of an attempt by the Hollywood dream machine to conform uh, to uh, the mores as set up by the production code, at least. There is another sort of category of films um, that I thought of when I started thinking about Mm -hmm. the Depression era films, which are just these pure escapist things, especially like the Busby Mm -hmm. Berkeley films with the rotating stages and the feathery dresses and all that. Tell me about those. Absolutely. And they're very, very important. They're big money makers. Um, The the escapist films, actually, I I like to think of them in two separate groups. the all-singing, all-dancing, all-money-making Hollywood musical, Busby Berkeley, um, 
um, movies like 42nd Street with uh, Ruby Keeler and uh, Footlight Parade, um, Gold Diggers of 1933, the Busby Berkeley Extravaganzas. All of these films really um, portray the kind of we can do it, we can put on a show, the gorgeous costumes, they um, hold up American patriotism, they hold up the class structure, um, they really hold up the traditional value of hard work. After all, on 42nd Street, Peggy Sawyer, the main character played by Ruby Keeler, and in every subsequent remake uh, up to the modern day, it's constantly remade, this film, because it, it really touches the myth of American society, true myth, that anyone can make it. Um, they combine also gorgeous costume, feathers and plumes and silk and lace. They look beautiful um, as well. So there's a certain a dream aspect, an aspirational aspect. To a large degree, life in these musicals is swell. I mean, if you think of the um, Fred Astaire, Ginger Roger musicals, now they are much later, but they're very early films, the first, the first one or two. Uh, films really are the same way. Life is life is good. Life is swell. They overcome some amount of adversity, but basically they overcome it through dance, through love. There's always a happy ending. And in most of these musicals, the same. There's usually a happy ending. It's actually a foregone conclusion. Um, and so they fill an important niche, um, probably the most uh, productive in terms of the business, the industry. They provide hope. They provide inspiration. They provide aspiration as well. So alongside these big production musicals and everything, there's another type of sort of escapist movies, um, which are sort of the the cafe society ones, the Thin Man and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. I, I call them cafe society movies because that's what they really portray. There's this world, a rarefied world, this world of gorgeous gowns, people who change into formal attire to have dinner at home, <laughs> flippant repartee, wit. They're soigné. It's high society. Um, they're, the, they're the elite. It's very seductive. It's a seductive picture of what society can be, particularly, just like the musicals, particularly for that person in the dark watching who's perhaps down on their luck. Um, it's a world passionately desired by the moviegoer. You know, it, it's life as we wish it could be. Um, and here the there are one or two um, kind of key elements. Um, in addition to um, the look of this world, there's also one or two of them which really portray a, a new type of society, another wish of the American public, and you know, another wish fulfillment, much like the beautiful lifestyle and the wealth and the happy musical and the can-do attitude. Here's a world, too, particularly in The Thin Man is a good example, where there are no classes, or I shouldn't say... No classes, but that the classes all come together. High society with low society. If you remember the film, Dick Powell is a de- plays a detective. He marries a wealthy woman, played by Myrna Loy. She's the rich wife. He's the detective. He has criminal friends, snitches, um, gamblers. Also, they have lawyer friends, doctor friends, professor friends, professors, policemen. All of them come to, together to solve the crime, to find the murderer. 
Um, and it's true of the later, the whole series of The Thin Man, which takes place obviously later. The first Thin Man is, I think, in 1934. Um, and this is, too, is new um, for the first time. Not only is the audience somewhat classless in the dark, but now on screen, you have the coming together, the blending of many elements of society from high, as I said, from high to low, um, with a, an intent, a specific intent, solve solve the crime, find the murderer. Um, but that's that's new, and, and it's hopeful, and it gives the American people at a time of real despair a different kind of hope. Now, there aren't a lot of these films either, but they're the, the except the the ones that do like the thin man present society like this um have a great impact they're very popular they're very successful it's a successful film they made four more so <laughs> had to be quite successful and the chemistry was right um but but i think what was also right is that america was ready for that kind of message well, Sarah Vernaza, thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. I, I was glad of this opportunity. More information about the College at 60 program is at fordham.edu slash college at 60. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. We heard clips today from the films The Purple Rose of Cairo, All Quiet on the Western Front, The Marx Brothers' Monkey Business, and Blonde Venus. If you missed part of the show, or if you'd like to hear it again, Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. You can also hear past shows in our audio archive. That's also at WFUV.org. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. We would love to hear from you. Producing the show this week with help from Liz Brockland, I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend. forgotten you long ago But you're in every song I know Pining and pining is wrong and so on and so forth Of course, of course But no, you can't have a divorce I haven't seen you in ages But it's not as bleak as it This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.